Welcome to Any Given You. This show is about all things college football, and on it you will hear insights, analysis, discussion, predictions, and stories of any given topic from any given time, past, present, or future. We believe that the stats are great, but the stories are greater. And you should listen if you have a passion for the game and what makes it great. We're going to talk about touchdowns and touched lives. Come with us on a journey that extends beyond the field of play. We will talk wins, losses, and coachable moments learned on the football field and taken to the classroom, workforce, home, and even the battlefield. Division one to division none. Five-star recruits to walk-ons, it doesn't matter. If it's college football, it's worth the story. I'm your host, Michael Megan. U.S. Army Ranger and a former college football player, and more importantly, a lifelong fan of all things college football. Whether you are a casual fan, a fanatic, a coach, a player, or just a person who loves great stories, then huddle up and commit at Any Given You. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Any Given You podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Megan, and we have another fantastic show as another fantastic week of college football has wrapped up. We want to remind everybody that if you're enjoying the content, please tell your friends about it. Please get over to Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcast. Make sure that you follow us. Give us a little rating, review, shout out, and continue to grow the awareness for the pod as the U crew is surging now at 1,200 strong. Uh, make sure that if you are on Facebook, get over to our public group, the Any Given You Facebook group. It's totally public. I don't ask any annoying questions in the beginning or anything like that. No passwords, nothing. Just come on in, join the family, join the U crew as we continue to motor through what is already a very exciting and very drama-filled 2022 season. We are cooking with hot grease right now, really, as uh, our predictions and previews and picks as we have picked money line, outright winners, spreads, overs, and unders. We are sitting at a very comfortable 67 and 23 at this point for all of our calls combined through week one and week two. We'll definitely delve into how some of those played out. I'm not going to quite reach back to the week one uh, stuff. I, you know, unfortunately, this past week, I definitely had some family matters to attend to, but everything is good now. So we're just going to pick up here with week two and really discuss what it is that jumped out to us as we laid a whopping 31 plays on the week. We went 20 and 11 this week, so not quite our expectation of ourselves here, but still a very good average overall for calling what was a very crazy week in college football. It seems like every time the, the, the talking heads in the studio and whatnot want to tell you that uh, this week's going to be a little bit blah, there's not a ton of marquee matchups or anything like that, college football never ceases to amaze. It never disappoints. It really doesn't. I mean, because of just the volatility factor and the variance in this sport in and of itself, it gives you something that the pro game just really doesn't give. I just, it was very, very telling to bring us a reality check, if you will, that the AP polls, the preconceptions that we have for a lot of these teams rarely survive first contact. And on the flip side of that coin too, when we get into November, I want everybody to remember what's happening here in September. I want you to remember the teams that look really hot right now and the ones that look like garbage right now and the ones that are, you know, 
a little bit of still gray man mystery territory. Come November, these teams, I guarantee you, a lot of these teams that you just saw here in week two are going to look vastly different when we get into the championship rounds of the season. The cream has a way of rising to the top. The pretenders will fall by the wayside. But right now it's fun and awesome because it feels very mafia boss, Game of Thrones, whatever kind of uh, environment you want to stick on it where anybody can beat anybody. Somebody's getting whacked every episode. So it's just a fun time of year. We're going to start with discussing the game in Orlando in the bounce house as Louisville took a trip to UCF. And we had a play on this game. We had a couple, actually. We had UCF winning the game. We also had them covering the spread at minus five. Neither of those actually worked out for us as UCF just looked out of sorts. They looked really good in the beginning of the game. Louisville did not look very um, effective or efficient in any phase of the game. I thought for sure that at that point UCF would put the pedal to the metal and, and pull away and get this one for us. And then there just seemed to be a changing of the guard as both teams were a little bit underwhelming for sure. Discipline and execution, both teams were absolutely appalling. Like watching how this game played out as Louisville got the win 20 to 14, over 200 yards in combined penalties between both squads. And it just kind of really left you feeling like you needed a shower after watching that game. That's how I felt anyway. I understand now a little bit better what the Auburn faithful were so upset at Gus Malzahn about as that putt-putt offense could not get off the ground at all. And it seems like he has handcuffed himself to another athlete instead of a quarterback as John Rice Plumley was very inefficient throwing the ball, largely ineffective overall as Louisville's defensive line was able to kind of neutralize what it was UCF wanted to do. And when the game was put in his hands on his on the strength of his arm and his ability to read coverage and put the ball on the money, it just was not there. Louisville was able to stop UCF, I think, 11 consecutive drives, ended in a punt and or a turnover. So, I mean, kudos to the Louisville defense. But, again, these two squads have kind of shown us that because of their lack of discipline execution on both sides of the ball, respectively for both of these teams, I wouldn't expect too much out of Louisville moving forward, nor UCF in maybe power five matchups. We'll have to see, we'll have to readdress with these teams to see what they develop into. I still think that UCF has plenty of talent all over the field, but I am really concerned about that play calling offensively as Gus Malzahn has been known to waste good rosters and waste good defenses on his clunky dinky donkey offense so we'll see what happens with UCF and we'll see what happens with Louisville as their next opponent is Florida State the next game that we had Alabama at Texas we had Alabama winning it which hit we had Alabama by 19 and a half it, the book closed on this one at 21 and a half so essentially 22 points we took it at 19 and a half it did open at 17. Honestly, we saw this one going a lot differently. We definitely thought that Alabama from last season, what we saw out of the tide last season, that they were going to take a step forward in their maturation and progression and fix some of the issues that we saw out of them last year, like the lack of physicality on the offensive line, the uh, penalty issues that we saw Alabama last year have, particularly early. And basically what happened was this game to me had so many of the same feels as when Alabama took a trip to Gainesville last year to play Florida in the swamp early in the year. We saw an uncharacteristic Alabama team with the penalties, 
with the lack of physicality, the lack of execution, the missed tackles, the sloppy play. And we thought then that Alabama looked pretty beatable. And what happened last year is the season progressed. They had more of those knife fight type competitions. Obviously, Texas A&M handed them a loss in Kyle Field. LSU played them to a close contest. Auburn gave them hell. Arkansas did as well. And then obviously they lost the national championship to Georgia. On the flip side, that team also completely dominated a team in Mississippi State, absolutely gutted Georgia in Atlanta. So there was a lot of volatility factor, I guess you could say, week in and week out with what version of Alabama you were going to get. And I feel like they really haven't changed that much from last year to this year, and at least not that I was what I was watching. What has changed, in my opinion, was Texas, and in particular on the defensive side of the ball. I don't know if the entire roster has made that switch towards Texas becoming a legit top 10 contending type team, but what I did see out of Texas was a lot of physicality, speed, motivation, a much improved defensive side of the ball for Texas. I don't know how much you attribute that to Gary Patterson's presence over the last 90 days or so, or how much you attribute that to the recruiting classes finally expressing themselves and playing up to the level that they were capable of all along. I think maybe it's a little bit of both, but it was very encouraging as I think that that was the best 60 minutes, I would say 59 minutes maybe, how the game turned out in the last 60 seconds or so, but of Texas defensive football that I've seen in a while. They bodied up these wide receivers for Alabama. They were very good at stymieing the run. They got physical. They got after Alabama's offensive line. They got after their ass big time. They were constantly putting Bryce Young under duress. He had to make a real Superman play here at the end of the game to get into field goal range so that they could win it uh, 20 to 19. So obviously Texas more than covered that spread uh, in this one. There was also some very controversial stuff, as we all know, the, the, the play in question, the potential safety slash what it was called roughing the passer with targeting was it intentional grounding i think that that entire call right there was a complete shit show and a lot of people attribute that as being the factor that won and lost the game in my opinion if it's coming down to one single call like that you know i don't think either squad did enough to really dominate the game and win outright and at that point you're going to kind of leave it up to that sort of chance stuff happening. But what I'm thinking is, I think I know what Alabama is. I think I know that Alabama is essentially the same team that they were last year. They are a team that is capable of playing at a very high level. They are a team that is capable of being a playoff team. They're capable of winning a championship, but they're also capable of dropping a game or two games or maybe even more. I mean, possibly, I mean, if you really think about it, this is just kind of a volatile ride a little bit here for Alabama as I do not believe that that program is sitting at the same level of dominance that we saw out of it in years like 2015 and 2012. This is not the same Alabama squad from a few years ago when they just seemed absolutely invincible, unbeatable, and unquestioned that they had the best roster in the country. You knew almost like clockwork what you were going to get out of Alabama. And when you have to overturn your roster every single year, not only the roster from NFL uh, draft, but also the coaching staff, almost every single year as the Alabama assistants go on to take these head coaching jobs, 
after a while, that's going to catch up with you. I think a little bit of that continuity changeover year in and year out finally has caught up with Alabama as you've seen other programs able to keep that a little bit better, close the gap on the rosters, close the gap in the coaching staffs as well. And I don't think that the the huge disparity like there used to be is still there. So still a very good team in Alabama, but more vulnerable, more beatable. With Texas, I'm still very much wait and see because I don't know what the character of this program is still. If it is the same Texas as we saw last year. They lose the UTSA this week. That's what happens to them. They are still not over that performance in Austin. And UTSA comes to town, a team that is scrappy and ready to play in one possession games and find a way to win. And a really tough little G5 opponent to put away that's going to throw their best shot for 60 minutes and then some. And Texas winds up losing this one. If they are the same Texas as before or we see Texas respond, move forward, understand that they can take one on the chin. They can go toe-to-toe with what was the number one team in the country at the time. Obviously, the number one program in the country if we're talking about body of work and hold their own and use that as a launching point to have a better season moving here on. So I, it depends on what version of Texas and how much of that culture Steve Sarkeesian has been able to influence towards the positive, but we'll have to wait and see to see it. Miami took on Southern Miss. We took them to cover this game by 25. Alas, they hit 23. As Southern Miss, and I'm kicking myself a little bit here, I think in, a, in their small sample size, their two games, has proven something to me that I thought was true about them. They're a much improved squad. I was talking about these guys in the offseason a little bit, with the influx of SEC talent that they were able to get through the transfer portal. And I think they definitely surprised Miami a little bit for a half of football. Mario Cristobal apparently went off in the locker room at halftime, and Miami came out and looked like a much better, more competent product as they did go on to win the game 30-7. to But again, a little bit of a wait and see with Miami as they have a big matchup looming with Texas A&M in Kyle Field. Don't think I've forgotten about what happened to AM. We can talk about that here in a little bit, but Miami ahead of that contest. I'm still a little wait and see with them too. Tennessee versus Pitt. We took Tennessee over Pitt. We got that. And we also took the under 67 and a half, which also hit as we were counting on enough of a defensive battle between these two teams to keep it from going to total shootout mode. We've also seen the way that Pat Narduzzi is calling games for Pitt trying to rely a little more on physicality in the run game. We like that to bleed some time. And it did turn into a little bit more of a defensive struggle than what you saw out of last year. The reason we like Tennessee in this competition is because we liked the mismatches that they had in the receiving game versus Pitt's secondary, Pitt's undersized defensive backs that they leave on an island because they leave so many bodies around the line of scrimmage. Pitt had a very has a very solid front seven. I think they're maybe the best single unit in the ACC with the exception maybe Clemson's front seven could be better but I mean Pitt has a very stout front seven but that back end does have to play a lot of island ball and against Tennessee's wide receivers you know we saw Pitt 
in week one struggle against West Virginia's receiving core that I honestly is nowhere near what Tennessee is bringing to the table in terms of pure talent, depth, and size, and that gave them problems. So that kind of led us to the conclusion that Tennessee was going to go get this win, and it was nice to see that, and it was nice to see Tennessee actually play ball on both sides of the ball as the defense was the side of the ball that sealed the victory in overtime standing tall and getting the win there. So good good for us, good for Tennessee. Glad they got that win. We took Kansas State over Missouri. That hit, as we said in the offseason, Kansas State is a decent squad here in the Big 12. In preseason, Missouri was favored in this one, but I think people are starting to get wise a little bit to what Chris Kleiman is building there in Manhattan. Deuce Vaughn had another sensational game on the ground. They are a ground-and-pound, play-defense kind of squad, and they were able to have a lot of success against Missouri. The over 56 did not hit, but Kansas State was basically in cruise control of this game. That'll be another team to keep an eye on in the Big 12 moving forward. BYU versus Baylor. We're very proud of this one because we did take BYU at home. We took them by minus three. That covered as BYU was able to get the win 26-20. What really stands out to me about this BYU squad is that defense and the way they flew around the field and absolutely hit people in the mouth. They were serving up plastic soup all night long to Baylor. As last year, this game took place in Waco. When that happened, Baylor absolutely mauled these guys in 2021 and really took the man card from there. I think that was the... Kalani Sataki's message to this BYU team was to go get their respect back against this Baylor team. Now the table turned, they're in Provo, they're at Elevation, they're in BYU's house, and they absolutely flew around. The way that they were laying the lumper in this one, if you did not see this game, I encourage you to go back and take a look at some YouTube highlights of this one because that is how you fill gaps. That is how you play linebacker. Look at what they are doing at BYU. Up in the front, that front seven was so physical. They were so fast, and they hit so damn hard. They were moving with a sense of purpose in that one. Jaron Hall looked really good, pushing the ball down the field to wide receiver Chase Roberts. Chase was on the case as he was moving down the field, making big plays, big receptions. And what's really impressive is how BYU was able to get something going in the past game as well, having lost their top two targets from last year to the draft. I think that this BYU team, I, I don't want to call it too early again. It's September. I'm just making observations right now. But from what I have observed so far, they very well could be the best team outside of the Power Five. They do have one hellacious schedule ahead of them still. But if they were able to go undefeated or maybe even just be a one-loss team taking on the likes of Oregon and Arkansas and Notre Dame and Baylor. I mean, maybe not Notre Dame so much anymore, but that schedule was very aggressive when it was set here in the offseason. If they're able to run the table and go undefeated there, I don't see how you really keep them out of the playoff. Now, I know we're you know not anywhere near playoff territory right now, but I think that this is a very solid, very competitive and very hard team to put away in BYU, and I was very impressed. For Baylor, they look good in the trenches. They look good offensive line, defensive line. They still play with a physicality there at Baylor that is going to serve them well in Big 12 play. But again, we took these guys as about an 8-4 and team or so. I think that's still what we're looking at here with Baylor. I think that 
the losses on a squad like that, I don't expect them to fall off a cliff because of Coach Aranda. But at the same time, uh, this is a team that I think does take a bit of a step back this year. We were talking about that. And so this loss to BYU in Provo kind of solidifies that a little bit in my mind as I think that the Big 12 has some teams this year that could give Baylor some issues, but we'll see how they look moving forward. Fresno, Oregon State, we took Fresno to win it. They did not. They came up just short as Oregon State was able to punch in a goal line touchdown with three seconds left in the game. They did not play for overtime. They went for the win straight up because they believed in their ability to run the ball. They believe in what they're doing there. Very, very impressive when you consider this stat line right here that Oregon State was 0 for 7 in their last seven road trips. They finally get a win against a tough opponent in Mountain West contender Fresno State on the road. So that was very encouraging if you were an Oregon, Oregon State fan. We did like them in the offseason. We just didn't know how much we liked them because of their inefficiency on the road. But they really did, in my opinion, snag a fairly impressive win when you're talking about getting a win over Fresno State on the road. Iowa State versus Iowa. We took Iowa State in this one as Iowa has won the last six competitions, and we figured that the other shoe was going to have to drop. Iowa is such a bad offensive team, it's laughable. I mean, I think they would have better success if they were to punt the ball away and play special teams and defense for the entire game instead of what they do on offense. They turned it over three times. They also found a way to take the ball away from Iowa State three times. What's really frustrating about Iowa State is the fact that they moved the ball into scoring territory multiple times. They also had a missed field goal. If they were able to capitalize on all of their red zone possessions and actually score a couple of touchdowns and a field goal, they could have won this game, I mean, comfortably like a 24-7 to kind of score. Uh, Iowa's offense is so incredibly anemic, I can't even, uh, like, again, it's one of those games where I feel like I need to take a shower after I watch it because it's just so incomplete. They do not play complimentary football there anymore. Like, at one point in time, Iowa was a team that was able to get takeaways on defense and capitalize offensively on those. Now, literally, it is so tilted to one side of the ball over the other. Kirk Ferentz's son is still the OC there. I think nepotism is really holding this program back as they are absolutely refusing to adapt in any kind of way. And Matt Campbell gets the much-deserved win there in Iowa City. So very, uh, I'm not going to say impressive, but I am going to say it's encouraging that he's able to at least get a win over this team that is so putrid offensively I mean it really stinks it stinks worse than A&M and speaking of A&M Appalachian State takes a trip we didn't have a play on this game but I just got to talk about this for a minute Appalachian State takes a trip to Texas A&M they go to Kyle Field as Texas A&M opened as a considerable favorite in this one App State coming off of the loss in the absolute shootout that they had with UNC in Boone just the week prior and we thought that you know A&M in the offseason because of the talent accrual that they have like let me just break this down as far as blue chip players on the roster, these would be four-star, five-star players. AM has 56. App State's roster had one. One. 56 versus one. That's incredible. That is incredible when you're talking about a disparity in a roster. You know what else is incredible? The inability to coach that roster. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to talk about Jimbo Fisher here and the 
inability, the unwillingness to adapt offensively. We have seen this out of him time and time again. And the inability to evaluate the quarterback position, as I do not believe that the best quarterback on their roster was starting, but I really don't think it matters, honestly, if you're not going to adapt the scheme. The offense that Jimbo Fisher is currently running, I believe, is too complex, especially when you're talking about route concepts, to get the ball out, to have your explosive passing games. Because there's just too much noise, I think, in the in complexity in the play calling. This has been a criticism of his offense now for a long time. I mean, short of having the kind of team that he had at Florida State, talent-wise, I mean, the talent is there. It just, again, the unwillingness, the unwillingness to adapt offensively, I feel, is going to potentially waste what is, I, I believe, to be a very good defensive unit, a decent special teams unit, a good offense, good like good offensive talent, I should say. They have playmakers. They have speed. They have size. And none of that mattered as App State was able to scheme them right out of it. App State, 83 offensive snaps to Texas A&M's 38 offensive snaps. That defense... Was on the for Texas A&M was on the field all day. They got out physicaled as well. I mean, they really did, but the offense did them no favors and able to sustain any kind of drives. And that is the kind of loss that takes other wins from you. When you were talking about a snap count on that defensive unit, you are you're getting empty in that gas tank week in and week out because your offense can't sustain drives. That is going to rob you of wins in October and November when you're looking at that side of the ball getting ground down, moving into the championship rounds where defense becomes even more important. This is a team that is also not playing complimentary football right now, and it's really sad because I have personally laid eyes on Kyle Field. That is a beautiful venue. The, the town of College Station, as we all know, I'm moving there very, very, very shortly. My family is already out there. They are absolutely cuckoo about that program. They are, like I said, it is a cult. It's a very nice cult, but it is a cult. And they love themselves some Aggies football out there. And they deserve better. They've recruited, they've invested, and they just, plain and simple, deserve better. So I hope that Jimbo Fisher can figure out a way to adapt offensively to where it's something palatable to watch. It's something that is able to at least be efficient and protect that defense a little bit, play a little more complimentary football. For App State, a heartfelt congratulations. Way to go and knock off another big boy. They already have quite a few on their resume, uh, as I'm sure A&M is tumbling out of the top 10. I haven't even checked the new AP top 25 because I really don't care. I really don't care because it was so incorrect, right? It never survives first contact. So I don't really even care what it says right now. Power rankings, AP, there, there are disparities there. We'll see come playoff time where they start stacking up teams, but it's all debatable up to that point anyway. But Texas A&M, clearly not the sixth best team in the country, quote unquote, uh, you know, if they're going to take a home loss to a G5 team, even if it is App State, a very good G5 team, but still no business losing at home to App State with the kind of speed, athleticism, and talent that they have at Texas A&M. Some other plays from the week. We took Memphis over Navy. Memphis minus five. That hit. Uh, it was an easy play on the day. Penn State over Ohio. 
as they absolutely trounced them and covered big time for us. Duke, we took Duke to cover versus Northwestern. Duke won outright. Georgia Southern versus Nebraska. I don't know how you rate this game. I don't know how the odds makers seem to think that Nebraska was going to win this game against Georgia Southern by 23 and a half points as the line that they had concocted there when you have a team in Nebraska that never saw a game they didn't like to be in a one score loss with. So we took that and we were vindicated there. We took UNLV plus 13 versus Cal. We got that one too. We hit on Mississippi State over Arizona. We took the Bulldogs there to cover by 10.5, which they did. We took the under 51.5 Kentucky versus Florida. Let me talk about this one real quick. We were skeptical of both of these programs as neither one of them is terribly impressive at the quarterback position, right? If you had listened to the media mob after week one when Florida was able to beat Utah in the swamp, and Anthony Richardson made a couple of athletic plays. If you had listened to the talking heads in the studios with the overreactions there, you might as well have handed Anthony Richardson the frickin' Heisman right then and there. I knew better. I think we knew better here at any given you to let that sit for a second. Let's wait and see. Let's let that simmer for a minute because we're talking about, again, the corollaries between the leagues. What is exceptional for the Pac-12 is about middle of the road for the SEC. And that was proven again as Kentucky comes to town and there was a different level of physicality in this one. There was a different level of speed in this one. There was a different level of having to process the field and actually play the quarterback position from Anthony Richardson. They didn't really let him get loose in the run game. I like what they did. They rolled up and played contain, pushed the pocket on him, and made him read the field and try to complete passes down the field. And you saw what happened. He's not a well-groomed quarterback as much as he is an exceptional athlete. And I think there is a lot of physical tool stuff to be very excited about. I mean, duh, like look at the kid. He's, a, he's an absolute unit. He's huge. He's heavy. He's quick. He has a rocket launcher for an arm, able to throw it 80 yards deep. That's all great and well, but if you can't read cover two, cover three, understand bringing pressure with zone behind it, seeing corners sit on routes, and you're firing the ball right into it, that it doesn't matter how far you can throw it at that point. What matters is that you are a well-rounded student of the game. He still has a long, long way to go. Conversely, Will Levis, not super impressive in his own right. I didn't like a lot of the things that he did. Uh, I think that he got lucky on quite a few throws. There's one play that in particular is sticking out to me where he was clearly threw a ball high. There happened to be a Kentucky wide receiver on the backside of it that caught it for a big explosive splash play. Kentucky, again, still struggling in the run game, but made enough plays on defense and made enough plays on offense to get this one and win the game. Kentucky is the better team. It just... As a matter of fact, they are better than Florida. But given the setting and everything else, we just didn't want to te uh, take a winner. We did take the under 51 and a half, which did hit, right? Because we did feel that the defensive units for both of these teams would be the better side of the ball. And then offensively with the quarterbacks, we didn't really trust them to move those offenses efficiently and, and really rack up a bunch of points. So I am not at all shocked that Kentucky got the win on the road against Florida as Florida is starting to look a lot more like what we thought they would be in the offseason. 
And really, that's no change for Kentucky either. Kentucky looks exactly like I thought Kentucky would look as well. So these two teams are just kind of proven to me right now that I'll be able to make a conclusion about them shortly as to what they are. We took the over 64 in UNC and Georgia State. That came very close to hitting, but not quite, as UNC's defense played a little bit better this week against Georgia State. But both offenses very successful moving the ball. Michigan State over Akron with Michigan State covering at 34 and a half. That was a pretty easy slam dunk play for us as well. Did you really think I was going to get out of this episode without addressing the leprechaun in the room? As Marshall takes down Notre Dame in Notre Dame Stadium. And just this, this game... I mean, I think when you hear of an upset like that, right, you might think that there's some fluky things that happened. Was there a disproportionate turnover margin? Was there, you know, just some kind of crazy controversial call? Uh, Was there something like, you know, the injury bug biting? No, not really. No. Marshall came into town with a very physical defensive front, a very game secondary that took advantage of a Notre Dame squad that already had an anemic passing game as it was. They got physical with them up front at the line of scrimmage and literally whipped them from the inside out. You flip it over to the other side of the ball as well. Notre Dame's defense, although they gave up 18 points on the day technically because Marshall did score with a late pick six to really seal the game. Although the scoreboard, it didn't look so bad. uh, There were times in that game where Marshall just was straight dominating uh, that front seven being able to move the ball effectively against the Notre Dame defense that we had touted as pretty good as well as being led now by a defensive coach in Marcus Freeman. Speaking of coach Freeman, he is now the very first Notre Dame head coach in the history of the school, which stretches back a long time to be 0-3 in his first three competitions here. And this one's just not not a good look, man. It's really not. Like, I, I can understand your first coaching experience in the seat and losing to a highly ranked Oklahoma State team and Coach Gundy, a coach and a staff with all sorts of experience and whatnot in a bowl game. I get that. Nobody really expected Notre Dame to win at Ohio State, okay? Neither did I. I thought that they would cover. We did get that play. And we thought that the talent level was somewhat commensurate enough to represent themselves well in that game. And I thought that they did. I thought that they did do a decent job of that. Offensively, we did see the struggles coming ahead. But in no way, shape, or form was I expecting Marshall, although I do know Marshall is a solid G5 program and a pretty good team in the Sun Belt, in no way, shape, or form did I think that they would just flat out physically dominate the Notre Dame Fighting Irish at home and I say this often, I ask this question often when we talk about Notre Dame. When I think they're appropriately rated, where I think they're mostly appropriately rated year in and year out, I like them somewhere between 8 to 15, somewhere in there. 8 to 12 is usually where I would have put Brian Kelly's Notre Dame squad most years under his tenure there. One of the metrics of their success under Coach Kelly at Notre Dame is they just flat out did not lose to unranked opponents. And now we have a different narrative. Not only did they lose to an unranked G5 opponent at home, they straight got manhandled. 
They got whooped. They did not look like the more physical team on the day because they were not the more physical team on the day. It really does raise some questions about Marcus Freeman's preparation of this team. I'm not obviously clamoring on the bandwagon of let's fire Marcus Freeman or anything like that. I mean, I think the sample size is still, still too small, but 0-3, the first Notre Dame head coach of all time to be 0-3, this, this team does not look well prepared and you start taking a look at that schedule where you might have thought Notre Dame was undoubtedly going to be the more physical team, uh, would undoubtedly have the better shot at winning on the day, and now I'm starting to see a lot more losses on this for them peaking ahead. Now again, you know, <clears throat> it's it's still a little too early to call to a season's conclusion, but I do not feel confident in Notre Dame to be able to score at a pace that's going to keep up with North Carolina, who is on the schedule. USC, obviously, is the rival to end the year. I don't think they're physically going to hold up against BYU, who is also on the schedule. So I could easily see this Notre Dame squad showing me what they showed me against Marshall at home. I could easily see them losing four or maybe even five games this season. And if they were to do that, I think that that's a little bit of a, I think people are going to kind of remain a little bit dubious about Marcus Freeman until maybe he can right that ship a little bit. And the other thing is, is because of all of the offseason momentum and recruiting clout that he had garnered, watch Notre Dame go seven and five and watch this recruiting class for Notre Dame begin to dissolve as he was recruiting the kind of kids that want to go places to go win championships. They don't want to go to Notre Dame with all of the sorts of restrictions and all of the sorts of hurdles that a place like Notre Dame has and rebuild the 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 program, you know, that I mean the the draw to come to Notre Dame is that it is a ready-made product. It's a tailor-made product, and it is a team that is going to be consistently in the hunt to win 10-plus games on a tough schedule, be in the playoff conversation, maybe even make the playoff every couple of years, and push for championships. And that sort of program makes it worth it when you're talking about all of the stringent academics, the code of conduct, and everything else. If you're in the middle of a rebuild along with all that other shit, too— that becomes a lot less appealing to today's you know modern recruit, and especially when you're talking about upper echelon uh, four and five star blue chip players, which which is what they need at Notre Dame to close that gap and make that final push towards being a legitimate national championship contender, which is what Marcus Freeman is selling there at Notre Dame. So one hand really has to wash the other here. It'll be interesting to see if they start to turn the tide and the trends of this team for this season, but they have a challenge enough schedule with what I've seen as far as lackluster performance to really give them some serious problems. So week two in the books, obviously, like I said, at the start of this episode is extremely exciting, extremely telling in a lot of ways season that we're in. I mean, we had three teams in the top 10 wind up out of the top 10. We had ranked teams going down all over the place as the sport never seems to disappoint. We are still very much here in wait and see mode on the season here at the Any Given You podcast. We are not going to try to talk about which team is elite at this point versus which teams are absolutely inferior competition or where these guys are definitively stacking up right now. Again, this is observation time. We'll draw conclusions later in the season, but I would just let everything kind of simmer. Take a wait and see approach 
And let's see what happens in October as opposed to, you know, making our assumptions here in September. This is still very early and very young in the season. There's going to be more shakeups. There's going to be more topsy-turvy stuff. But as I said, as the year progresses, the real ones will rise. The good ones will make their adjustments. The bad ones will fall off. And I can't wait to see how the drama plays out moving forward here in the 2022 season. But man, definitely a thriller here in week two. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard on the podcast today, please do us a favor and get over to Apple Pods or Spotify or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Get over to the Any Given You Facebook group. Come join us. Come join the You crew. Join the family. Join the movement. Tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your friends about the group as we continue to barrel our way through the 2022 season and beyond. And if you enjoyed what you heard, remember this. Any given time, any given place, any given team, you'll get it here at any given you.